0: I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We've uh, been in our Marriage Enrichment Weekend this weekend, and it's been a wonderful time. We're excited to to continue looking at this biblical concept of marriage. What does the Bible have to say about marriage and how we should go about our marriages? I heard about a lady who uh, wanted to marry she wanted to to marry not just one man, but she wanted to marry four different men during her lifetime. She said each one would help her with the four things that she needed most. And so the first man that she wanted to marry was a banker. The second was a movie star. The third was a pastor. And the fourth was a funeral director. And so hearing that, people were just kind of puzzled. Why in the world would you want to, number one, marry four men and then the variety of type of men, what's this all about? And so she gave a simple answer: one's for the money, two's for the show, three's to get ready, and four's to go. <laughs> this weekend, we have been discussing uh, the be- this beautiful aspect, or this beautiful subject of marriage. And I, I just want to tell you right off the front end that we have not concluded that it's better to have more than one. more the is not a biblical concept when it comes to marriage. But in our culture, that is something that oftentimes is, if not taught, um, accepted. Many, in our, many people in our culture do believe that when a relationship begins to not work out or that relationship begins to move south, then it's just fine and dainty to, to move on to the next person, the next man, the next woman, the next one in line. That They believe the, the simple lie that someone or something better must be around the corner. I saw this week uh, a story about a lawyer who uh, submitted an opinion that divorces result from romanticized expectations. He, he shared how Jack thinks that being married to Jill will be utter bliss. And so on the front end of their marriage, he begins. To, to, he talks with her with, with words such as angel and sweetie. And, and, and so then they move into marriage, and shortly after all of that happens, and things begin to change a little bit. When the wedding bells become an echo, the truth sets in. And if you're married, you know this. You've experienced this to some extent. Uh, instead of wedding bells and, and, and wonderful titles, unpleasant moods and weight gains and burned dinners and hair colors begin to replace all those things that you thought marriage would look like and be like. And so Jack begins to silently wonder how we ever got into this. He even begins to secretly harbor resentment, thinking that somehow Jill has deceived him. On the other side, before marriage, Jill's heart beats a little faster when she thinks about Jack. It will be such heaven, she says, to be married to Jack. He's such a wonderful man. And so she's just beaming with excitement. Then come cigarette ashes, his addiction to sports events on television, minor but painful insensitivities. Then there's that that doorknob that he promised multiple times to fix, and yet it still comes off in her hand every time she touches it. And so Jill begins to cry a lot, and Jill begins to Google marriage counselors. This lawyer goes on to insist that disillusionment always seems to follow when we expect someone else to make us happy. Such expectations are a parade that's always going to be rained on. Uh, You see, there's no such... Thing is, a place called Camelot. There's no such thing as a person who you can refer to as Mr. or Mrs. Wright. This disillusionment, he says, is characterized by a cartoon of a huge woman standing over her diminutive seated husband with her finger in his eye saying, Make me happy. You ever been there in your marriage? You think that that person, or you believe that person you're, you said I do too, is the person that will and should bring you happiness, that person that will make you complete, that person who's supposed to make, you, make your dreams come true or come true in everything that you ever dreamed. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be happy in your marriage. Anybody want to be happy in your marriage this morning? You should all raise your hand, by the way. Class participation. You should all want to be married. I think it—it's true that every person that enters into marriage, every person who's planning to be married. So, you know how we do it, men. We we come up with this scheme. We we search the internet. We talk to our friends. We figure out how others have done it. We come up with this incredible concoction of, of things that are going to happen that's going to lead to that special moment where you can take that ring out and you get down on one knee and you, 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 you say these simple words that end with, will you marry me? And then she's going to light up and, and she's going to cry and people who are watching and perhaps even these days filming are going to capture all of this this wonderful moment, and it's going to live in infamy for the rest of our lives. We plan all this. Why? Because we want to be happily married. No one enters marriage with the desire and the plan to wreck it, right? No one enters marriage thinking, I'm going to really, really mess this up. In fact, I'm, I'm relishing in the idea of how I can just destroy this beautiful thing of marriage. In fact, no one would ever do that. No one would ever go down the road of sin and shame, the, the things that lead to a destroyed marriage, if they could see what lay at the end of the journey. How many men, how many women have you seen throw their lives away, their marriages away, and destroy their families through an affair, and at the end of it all, with their life in shambles, look back over all of it and say, man, that was incredible. What a ride we've been on. In fact, if I could do that over again, I would do that. No one ever says that. Why? It's because we want to have happy marriages. We want to have happy homes. We want to have all that that we desire and all that we should desire in this beautiful thing called marriage. You see, the truth is no one would ever go down the road of sin. No one would ever enter those doors of shame if they truly could undersee the understand and see the ramifications at the end of that journey. Jesus shares a parable very similar to the idea that I'm trying to paint before you this morning. And so in Luke chapter 15, we come to what we know of as the parable of the prodigal son. I want you to look with me in verse 11, and let's read some of these verses this morning. Jesus says, there was a man Who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Young man in this story that Jesus is sharing believed the lie that there is a life, better life for him outside of daddy's home outside of the love and care of his father. And so this young man demanded his inheritance from his father. I mean, we read this and we think, what an audacious request of a son from his father. And yet that's what he did. He demands this inheritance and says, let me have it. It's mine. I'm going to go take it. And he goes and takes it. And the Bible tells us here, he squanders it on reckless living. That Greek word there that's translated reckless in the English Standard Version can also be translated as riotous. He, he lived in r- rebellion. He lived in riotous, riotousness, if you will, from his father. He wasted his inheritance. You should look at it this way. He took what this father had given him, he goes into this faraway land and he squanders all of these things, all of his property, all of his money, all of his resources on anything and everything that caught his eye. He wastes it on people, on possessions, on party experiences, anything that caught his eye, he goes for it. And it was fun. I believe when Jesus is telling this story, the people who are listening to him are understanding that this young man took what he was given and he went and he had a great time with it. You see, sin is fun. That type of lifestyle is fun. It's exciting, it's engaging. And this man, this young man, had a wonderful experience, or at least for a while. You see, it ran out. It came to an end. It was not all that he hoped and wished that it was going to be. It was fun, but fun for only a while. At this point in the story, we can I don't know about you, but I can't help but wonder if the things he had chased after were as pleasurable as he really had hoped. It was the decision to go all in for a life of sin, all that he thought it would be. Or did he get to the end of it and think, this is all that I have to show for myself? This is all that I have for this, th- this money and these resources that I've squandered? This is all I have left? Did he really find a better life in this faraway land, away from and out from underneath his father? Jesus answers our question. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. I like how Jesus says here that this young man came to himself. In other words, this young man woke up to the reality of his debauchery. He woke up from this sinful lifestyle and was able to see with fresh eyes the destruction that his actions have caused him. And I believe also he more likely began to understand the, the difficulties and the hurt that he's caused his parents. He was able to see it. He comes to himself. See, you realize that life back home wasn't that bad after all. In fact, he even says that my father's hired servants, I'm not talking about my brother, but my father's hired servants have it better than I have it here as a young Jewish man living in a pig pen eating the slops. That's only meant for pigs. Uh, as you know, I grew up in Arkansas, and in Arkansas we got a lot of chickens, but we also have a lot of pigs. And I remember going to farms uh, that that, you know, Commercial farms and just smelling the, a hog farm, if you've ever been around that, that is not necessarily a pleasant smell to, to have around, and yet this young man's living in that. He's eating from that. If you've ever fed pigs, you know that they don't necessarily get this, this beautiful diet of, of Very nutritious thing. The hogs that my family raised and aunts and uncles and all that, they gave them whatever was left over. And so if there was table scraps, that went to the hogs. If there was uh, leftover shucks from corn, that went to the hogs. They got the leftovers, the nasty slop. And yet this man is eating this. So he began to understand that what he had lost, better yet what he had destroyed, was significant. The lies that he believed, over-promised, and they under-delivered. And that's what sin always does. Anytime we begin to to, to buy into what sin is trying to sell us, we need to understand that it always over-promises, and yet it never comes in and delivers what it says it will. And so he decides to go home, hoping that his father is just simply going to receive him as a hired servant. Let's continue in the story. Look at that second part of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You read this. I don't know about you, but I can't help but have a smile on my face because of the beauty of this picture. As his father receives his son back and welcomes him, not just as a servant, but welcomes him as a son in his home. See, thankfully, this young man's father never stopped loving his son. I picture him sitting on the front porch every single night, just rocking there, looking out to the horizon as far as he could possibly see, hoping to see one day his son making a return. And as soon as he sees his son on that particular day, he doesn't just send a servant. He picks up his robe, and he begins to run to his son. With compassion, he embraces and kisses him. And the young man beautifully confesses his wrongs, humbles himself before his father, and they celebrate the return of the son. The parable of the prodigal son as we know it is a beautiful and magnificent picture of redemption and grace. We can look at it this way. It is a riches to rags to riches story, and all of it begins with a lie. It begins with a lie. Do you know that believing a lie is the genesis or the beginning of every single sin in your life? It all starts with a lie. All of sin started with a lie. Genesis chapter 3. You know, more than likely, what's taking place in there in this chapter. God has created everything. He's created Adam and Eve. He's given them dominion and authority to rule and to reign. He's told them how they're to live, how they're to interact with Himself, how they're to interact with creation, how they're to interact with one another. We see this wonderful, beautiful uh, uh, statement there at the end of chapter 2 that they are both naked and unashamed. There's incredible community between Adam and Eve, man and woman, and man and woman with God. And then everything changes in chapter 3. This serpent comes in and it's Satan cloaked as a serpent. He begins to have a conversation with Eve and he begins to cast doubt into their minds, questioning both the word of God and the character of God. And there in verse 1, he asks this question to Eve. Did God actually say... We've talked about this even this weekend. What Eve as well as Adam should have done, they should have taken the question not to the serpent. They should have taken the question back to God and says, here's this serpent, this creature who's questioning what you've said, which means he's questioning your character. Give us an answer. Give us a verdict on the question so we know how to respond. They don't do that. They entertain the thought. They entertain the question. They begin to contemplate if the serpent is actually right. And so the serpent goes on. He says, you will not surely die. Because they've already answered the question. Rather than getting the verdict from the Lord, they answer the question. Yeah, God said that. And and he said, if we should not eat of this, and if we should not just eat, but we shouldn't touch it. So they add to what God said. and So he adds a little bit more. You're not going to die. You will not surely die. God knows. That when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So basically, the serpent was saying this. Hey, Eve, I want you to look at something. I want you to catch a glimpse of something that's here in the garden. Perhaps you've not really taken a good look at it. This thing that God says is bad for you, it's not really bad at all. In fact, this thing that God says is bad is actually good for you. It's really good for you. And you and Adam, if you will take this thing and you will eat it and you will enjoy it and you'll make it part of your life, if you will eat from this tree, your life, your relationship, your marriage, your future, your descendants, they will all be benefited and blessed because of it. God doesn't know what he's talking about. And so sin begins with a lie there in the Garden of Eden and sin in your life and sin in my life every single time comes because of a lie that has been whispered into our hearts and we believe it in our minds. Serpent here deceives Adam as well as Eve and he's deceiving us today that Jesus calls him the father of lives. He's seeking to deceive us into believing that obedience to God will result in our missing out on the best life has to offer. You see, the d- devil today tells us, and this system that he set up tells us, that if you do things God way, God's way, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of fun. And sin is fun. He's going to tell us that sexual purity is outdated. That's something for yesteryear. Saving oneself for marriage is really nothing more than missing out on one of life's most pleasurable experiences. He loves to convince us that putting our family and our marriage on the back burner in order to pursue the pleasures and accolades of a career and the wealth that can come there, those are the things that we should pursue, not a simple life of contentment. He loves to deceive us into believing that worship and service with Christ in his church is, 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 doesn't even compare to weekends at the beach in the lake house with friends. And so why waste your time in the church and doing that stuff when you could be out there having fun? He loves to cause us to believe all sorts of lies about our marriages. You see, Satan and sin are very deceptive. How do we recognize the lie? If sin begins with a lie, how do we recognize and then replace the lies that are coming against us in our marriages? How do we differentiate truth from the lie? Well, as a follower of Christ and a Bible-believing Christian, we know right off the bat that truth resides in one place. Truth is found in God and what God has spoken in what we call the Bible the Word of God, the Bible, is the truth of God for our lives. There is nothing else. I mean, it's everything. It's not part of the truth. It is the whole truth of God. Everything we need to know about this life is found in the Bible. Truth is found in God's Word. For example, Genesis 2.18 says, the Lord God says to Adam, it's not good, or it says to himself, the Lord God It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Sometimes I think we wonder in our lives is it really beneficial that I'm married? Is there any qualifications there? Is there any blessings that come from that? What is this really all about? Well, according to the Bible, the wife is a suitable gift given by God to the husband. And so this morning, if you're wondering, I don't know if this person sitting next to me is really the best person for me husband or wife? The Bible says he or she is. Yeah, that was kind of weak. Uh, You really believe that? Maybe this morning you're really struggling with that question, and you're like, I don't know if this person's the best person for me. Let's just be honest. If you've been married any amount of time at all, if you're past the honeymoon phase, you've had that question go through your mind, right? Y'all are looking at me like, you really thought that about Kara? She thinks it about me, probably. It's just a fact of life, and we're not going to always be on this emotional, romantic, woo, everything is wonderful, high in marriage. I wish it was like that, but that's not life. That's not reality. Life is about the ups and the downs, the hills and the valleys, and everything in between. And so... We're not going to live on this romantic, just everything every day is a Valentine type of day. That's not reality. And so when you're in the bottom of the valley, there are times in your life you're wondering, did I really make the right decision? Is this really the best person for me? And in that moment, we just trust the Lord and His sovereignty that He has led us to the right person. Or if you chose the wrong person, He's making that person the right person as you both are pursuing Jesus Christ. Right? And so the Bible says that he made Adam a helper fit for him. My wife, Kara, perfectly fits me, right? Sometimes I look at them like, boy, I wish you could have done something different there. Because you know why? She's opposite of me in a lot of areas, and I'd rather, here's what I think. I think everybody should be just like me, right? And you do too. That's why it gets us in conflict with other people, because we think everybody should view life through our lens and and understand the things that we understand. But God didn't give me that type of gift. He gave me someone who could complete me, but better yet, disciple me, grow me, rub those rough edges off of my life, challenge me at times. She's a perfect fit for my life. The Bible also says in Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So according to the Bible, to be married is a good thing. And has the blessing of God upon it regardless of circumstances. You're not going to hear that in our culture today. Marriage is malign. Marriage is marginalized. Marriage is something that's on the back burner. It's yesteryears type of stuff. But the Bible tells us that when you find a wife, you find a good thing. And the blessing of God is upon that. And it has nothing to do with your circumstances. So the enemy whispers lies into our ears. Always whispering lies. He uses a really simple way or method to do this. I told our folks in our breakout session yesterday that I was leading, I told them that Satan's not most likely on your shoulder whispering into your ear, and that's because he's not God. See, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's, he, he knows all things. He's all powerful. He's all these omnis. The devil is not that way. He is one creature. can only be at one place at one particular time in history. But he's got a whole lot of demons that do his minions or do his biddings for him. On top of that, he rules over a worldly system that has fallen, and so it's influencing culture, constantly reforming and distorting the truth of God. And he knows that each one of us, as a human being, are by nature sinful people. And so, as a person who wants to follow God and know God and believe his truth and live his truth, we have all of this working against us. A worldly system that's constantly attacking the word of God. A nature within us, our flesh, that's constantly attacking the word of God and wants to dispel dispel the word of God. And we even have demons that are working against us to influence and to tempt us. But I'm thankful this morning that I read in my devotion time in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation has overtaken me but that which is common to man. But God is faithful and always provide a way of escape for us. So it doesn't matter the, the, the system that we're living in. We have a God that's more powerful, more faithful, and more good. But that doesn't stop the devil. That doesn't stop his system. This is what he's doing. You remember the, 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 the old children's story, Goldilocks and the three bears? And You remember the breadcrumbs and they're following the breadcrumbs? That's what this system does, is they just lay little crumbs down in front of us, and we just follow them all the way to the pit of destruction until we walk off the edge. Whatever it is, it's one of those stories that I just kind of sleep through as I'm telling them or reading them. Bunches. going home. (laughs) I'll tell you what, no respect. Lord, don't take him out today. It's okay. That's right. Well, you didn't do a very good job of it. You just got to know where my mind's going. That's not even in my notes, really. So, Yeah, you sure you do. But really, this system and, and all of that's working against us, it's playing against our natural tendency to sin. It's playing against our natural tendency to want to do things our way. And, and so if we're going to get off the road that's leading to destruction, that obviously Hansel and Gretel or whatever the names are on, <laughs> we, we got to recognize the lies that come against us and replace them with truth. Ephesians chapter 5, another verse that we've looked at this weekend, verse 1. Paul says, therefore be imitators. The, the Greek word is, is mimitase. It, really, it literally is the word that we get our English word mimic from. So we're to mimic God. Therefore we'll be imitators, be mimics of God as beloved children. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. See, we have to know the truth in order to imitate the truth Giver. We gotta know what God's word says so that we can know how to live out that word, to obey that word. Better yet, we gotta know what the word of God says about all of life, all of marriage, all of parenting, all of sanctification, whatever we're facing in life, so that when those temptations come, when those breadcrumbs are dropped in front of us, we can recognize that's not a path that I want to walk. It leads to destruction, or or better yet, the fiery pit where the kids are thrown into. That's Hansel and Greta, right? All right? I'm, I'm with you. I'm tracking with you. we got to know how to recognize those things. And the only way you can recognize if you, is if you know the truth and the truth giver. And so let me share with you very quickly. Good night. Some lies that ladies believe. And I got these from my wife. She gave me a whole list. I picked out three of them. The, threes that, the, the three that, that I can easily um, abide by. No, I'm kidding. These are challenging things. Lie number one. My husband is supposed to be romantic all of the time. I fail at that constantly, so I need this. But that's a lie that perhaps women believe in their marriages, that, that the way they were romanced and their dating and perhaps even their engagement years obviously wanes a little bit when kids come and years come and all of those things. And yet there's this lie that says, he doesn't love me if he doesn't do X or blank. You just fill it in. Now, romance is excitement. It's the excitement or attraction that a specific person or situation elicits to one another. Love and romance, however, are not identical. See, you can have love, love but not have romance. You can have romance and not have love. Right? There's a lot of people that romance one another. They don't love each other. We're going to look in just a moment what love really is. It's laying down your life. It's unconditionally accepting another. That is not always the case when it comes to romance. And so when it, when it comes to our marriages, we need to understand that we've got to do the work. We've got to put the work in a relationship to deepen that love so that when the feelings begin to wear off, love is still there. My husband is supposed to be romantic all the time. That's a lie That the enemy whispers to us. And so that's the lie. The truth says romance may wane, but love will and can remain. Second lie, my husband is supposed to complete me or meet all of my needs. Perhaps this is one of the biggest lies that we face in marriage or or that women face. Only Jesus can meet your needs. Your husband, ladies, will never meet all of your needs. You might have thought he could when you were dating. You might have thought he could and would when you were engaged. But now that you've been married for a few years, though you still wish that he would do that, I, I, I would bet that you know he can't meet your needs. And yet that lie is still whispered to you and you still believe it. The only one who can meet your needs is the God who created you and created you for himself. Your husband didn't create you. Your husband didn't redeem you if you're a father of Jesus. Your husband's not sustaining your life. Your husband's not giving value to you. You get all of that from the God who created you for himself. And one of the blessings and gifts that the God who created you gives to you is your husband. But he is not the end all be all. Only God can meet your needs. But the lie says he must complete me. Truth says you were made for God and by God and only God can complete you third lie is that submission isn't relevant. Now, we're in Ephesians 5 here, and so this comes up. It tells, tells wives to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And so, in our culture today, submission is a, it's a four-letter word. It's a letter that you're just like, no, nah, that ain't for me. That's, that's from uh, seasons gone by. That's not today's type of Christianity. But yet, that's what the Bible tells us. Submission is valuable. Submission... It's part of the marriage. See, the Bible tells us in, in Genesis that there was not a, su- a helper suitable for Adam and all of the animals. I've told you, if you've been in our church long enough, you know that, uh, that when God created Adam and he gave him this assignment to name all of the animals and they came two by two, and he's like, oh, this is an elephant, that's a jackrabbit, that's a... That's a I don't know, that's a pair of largemouth bass that just kind of swim by, I don't know, in the creek. And he's just naming all these things. And I believe God did that for Adam so that at the end of it all, he began to realize everything's got its mate. Everything has its match. Everything has its helper. I don't have anybody. Though I'm made in the image of God and though I'm perfect and though I have this beautiful, wonderful relationship with God, there is still something that's not good in this creation. It leads him to long for someone else, and it's Eve that he's longing for, even though he doesn't know it. God puts him to sleep, performs his surgery, and out comes Eve from this rib. and She's a perfect helpmate, and she comes alongside him to lift him up as a submissive helper. That doesn't mean that Adam lords over her. That's not what that means at all. And so when we think about our marriages, we need to understand that today our culture shouldn't be the main voice piece in our ears. Our, uh, the voice we should be listening to is the truth of the word of God. And today the lie says he doesn't deserve my submission. And perhaps your husband does not because of the way he treats you. But it's not how your husband lives and how he acts that dictates how you should respond. It's the word of God and God's authority in your life that should be the voice piece. And so True says your submission is first to God and then it's to your husband. And all the tweeters just wrecked me because of that. Let me give you 3 lies about men that they believe in marriage. Number 1, love is circumstantial. Men, sometimes we love our li- our li- our live lives. Our wives, well, Only as long as they look the way we want them to look, say the things we want them to say, and act in a manner that we prefer. Circumstantial. It's based on our feelings at the moment. It's based on how and what they may do. But Ephesians 5.25, the Bible says, husbands love your wives. Okay, what does that mean? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, Jesus loves the church unconditionally. He receives and accepts each person, not based on his or her merit or what can be offered. Jesus loves the church solely in what he offers in grace. And husbands, we're to do that. We don't love our wives because of what they give to us. We love our wives because first Jesus is given to us, and now we're giving to them. It's grace and forgiveness and acceptance, and it's unconditional love. Love The lie says love is circumstantial. Truth says love is unconditional. And Jesus' love and acceptance never changes. Number two, discipleship is not my responsibility. Men, we love to be passive. We love to just kind of let things go by. We're so busy at work. We're so busy doing other things that we think our, our authority and responsibility in the home can be passed on to someone else. But it's ours to hold. It's ours to live out. I believe many, if not most men, believe their sole responsibility in the home is simply to put food on the table and a roof over everyone's head. Rearing children and connecting with their wives is a stretch, but it can be done for them, but it's not a primary concern. You see, men reject any responsibility to nurture, disciple their wives and their children. But what we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, is that Jesus, he, he said, the Bible says about Jesus, that he might sanctify her, speaking of the church, which is an example of how we as men should lead and love our wives, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle in any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If Jesus' actions in the church or for the church is my example and your example as a husband, that means that I'm to disciple, you're to disciple your wife and your children. And sometimes I think we may wonder, man, why does she act that way? Why does she do this? Why do my children do that? Look in the mirror. It's your fault. You're not discipling and shepherding your home the way you should. There's a responsibility that's placed upon you. You need to take the mantle up and lead. And yet the lie in our culture and the lie of our flesh says, it's not my responsibility. That's the pastor's responsibility to disciple my wife and my family. That's the lady's Bible study to take care of the flaws in her life. No, it's your responsibility first and foremost. You're the primary discipler in the home in which you live as a husband and as a father. Lie says, it's not my responsibility. Truth says, discipling your wife and children is your primary responsibility responsibility. Third lie, divided affection is okay. If you're, if you're wondering, man, he's stepping on some toes, men. I wrote the three men's lies, so I'm a little bit more forceful there, but here's one that you're really not going to like. Divided affection is okay. That's the lie. One of the most dangerous things that can harm a marriage is when a husband fails to fully leave home. Genesis 2, it tells us the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. See, from the very beginning, God's intention in marriage was for the man to leave mom and dad and bring a new life together with his wife, to start a new life. Ephesians 5.31, the first part of that verse says, A man shall leave his father, quoting Genesis, and the two shall become one flesh. See, young husbands and wives, they need space to grow and fail together. They need this early on in their marriages. But it doesn't matter how long you've been married. We always need to make sure that we've left home. There's nothing wrong with having a good relationship with your parents. You should. You should honor your parents. But you're, as we talked about this weekend, your primary responsibility or, or the people you should go to for counsel shouldn't primarily be mom and dad all the time. You need to leave. You need to have other friends. You need to have other people speaking in your life. But you need to leave. Your affection has to be for your wife, not for your mama. Don't compare your wife to your mom. I've made that mistake a few times. My mom made biscuits like this. That Yeah, cared, yeah. well, your mom needs to make those biscuits for you. She lives like 800 miles away. Well, I guess she can mail them here. There's another divided affection that affects us in our marriages, harms us. And that is when a husband allows himself to have an affection for any woman other than his wife. Now, obviously, all of us would say physical adultery, absolutely abhorrent. You shouldn't be a part of it. But you don't have to have physical adultery to commit adultery. Anytime your heart is being swayed, or drawn to another woman, and comparisons are beginning to be made between the wife that you sleep with every night and the woman who's in your office or at the gym or at the store that you're at. Anytime you begin to compare or have affections or emotional attachments, any of those things, you have entered a realm that is very, very dangerous, destructive. Emotional and visual affection is equally as sinful and destructive as a physical adulterous relationship. Now, the ramifications and the consequences may not be as grand because nothing physically has happened, but they begin to start the motion in that direction. See, the reason is this is dangerous is because the husband and wife are one flesh. So what you're literally doing when you begin to do this, and I'm speaking to men right now, but women, you're, you can be equally as guilty in this, right? Equally as guilty. It's a two-sided coin here. But the, be, the moment you begin to enter into this dangerous path, you're taking that other part of your one flesh with you. And it's hurtful, and it's destructive, and it's damaging. Think about how the Lord loves us. Never has a divided affection. God never looks at you and says, man, I'm wish you were like so-and-so. That person's really got it together. He loves me. You're kind of just floundering around here. That person's beautiful. You're not so beautiful. You're kind of homely. Look at how sanctified they are. Look how undignified you are. God never does that with you. But that's what we do many, many times when our affections begin to be divided. So the lie says divided affection is normal. It's okay. I mean, I haven't done anything physically wrong. The truth says you're one with your wife. There's no room for another. So the lie that we hear is the beginning of sin. Every sin begins with a lie. So what are the lies that you're believing today, personally? What are the lies you're believing in your marriage today? If you were able to see how all of these things that you're entertaining, perhaps even involved in, if you were able to go down the road to the end of the journey, and see the ramifications, the consequences, the destruction, all of the things that are going to happen because of this, would you continue down the road? Sometimes we would, because the attraction, the excitement, we might actually think that's okay. Or we might have the the arrogance and the audacity to think, I can, I can sway this thing. I can make it better. My kids will be okay. It's not really going to hurt them. No, it will absolutely leave lasting scars in their life. I was fishing yesterday afternoon with Keith, and we were talking about stuff, and I told him, and I think I've told you all before, but I can remember as a fourth-grade kid sitting in my mom's car with my sister and watching my dad come out of another woman's house. I can remember that vivid. There are a lot of things in my life I can't remember. I remember that day. Let me give you three things before we close here. How do we replace the lies? That's the title of the message this morning. What do we do with the lies that we've been told? How do we replace them in our life? Number one, know the truth. You got to know the Bible. See, the only way you can replace A lie, really the only way you can recognize a lie is to know what the truth says. So do you know the Word of God? Do you know what the Bible says about who you're supposed to be as a husband, who you're supposed to be as a wife? Do you know what the Bible says about what your marriage should look like, how it should operate, what you should be doing in it as a wife, as a husband, how all that works together? Do you know the truth? The only way you can know the lie, replace the lie, is to begin with knowing the truth. Secondly is believe the truth. Do you believe this? The lie says, this is crazy. I mean, The serpent says, did God really say? You're not really going to die. In fact, what God is holding back from you is that if you really eat from this tree, your life's going to be better. Your future's going to be better. Your kids are going to be better. Life is going to be wonderful and grand. It's going to be everything you ever dreamed it could be. God's holding back on you. So do you believe the truth that you know? And then the third thing is live the truth. You don't really believe the truth until you put it into practice in your life. It has to move from theory to practicality. It has to move from theory to application. Otherwise, you don't believe what you say you believe. You don't believe what you say you know until it's being fleshed out, pressed out into your life. That's how you replace it. So this morning, whatever lies you're you're entertaining, whatever lies you're believing, here's the truth. God loves you. He loves you with an intense, hot, passionate, zealous, selfless, sacrificial, redeeming type of love. That's what the truth tells us. The Bible tells us that we were made by God. We were made for God. We were designed to perfectly relate to him. There's no other aspect of all of creation, not even the angels in heaven and all of their differences and, and all of that, as we see in Revelation. There's no creature in all of creation that has the capacity to relate to and to be in relationship with God like we. He loves you. You were perfectly designed for him. The problem is that all of us have sinned. We've talked about it. We've all sinned, fallen short. That has created brokenness in our life. That's why we struggle. That's why our marriages are not what we wish they were. That's why they aren't living up to the ideals because of sin. Brokenness is a fact in all of our lives. It separates us from God. And even as a follower of God, redeemed through the blood of Jesus, we still struggle with brokenness. That's what this life called sanctification is all about. As we walk out of this and, and, and work in and work out our salvation through our lives. But how does that happen? It's the gospel. That's the best news of the Bible. God loves you. You're a sinful, broken mess. But God, through the gospel, through what his son Jesus has done for us, makes us new creatures again. The old's past. Behold, the new has come. And so the Bible tells us that we who are sinners, who fall short, who are separated from God, who deserve the judgment of a holy God, can be made right with God, can have our lives put back together through Jesus Christ. Christ as we believe that his death on the cross was enough to pay the penalty for our sins, that his burial there in the tomb was enough to conquer sin, death, and the grave, that his resurrection is what did accomplish that. As we believe into that, as we faith into that, Jesus changes our life, and the Holy Spirit is deposited into us seals us. And God is saying in that that, that moment, I love you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to keep you until the very end. You are mine. And the way I'm proving it is I'm putting myself in you. That's the good news. And today, wherever your marriage is at, it can be redeemed. It can be redeemed. I have friends that Walk through a whole lot of marital issues, actually leading even into divorce. Thought they could never reconcile. Thought things could never be put back together. Thought that they could never love the other person because there uh, they was were, they were such dissension, such hostility, such hatred even for the other person. But God did a work in both of their lives. And today, I can tell you multiple couples where they have actually remarried and are living for the Lord Jesus and raising families to the glory of God. Nothing is beyond the grace of God unless you want it to be beyond the grace of God. And so wherever you're at this morning in your marriage, it can be redeemed. If you will humble yourselves like the son in the story did. Father, I'm not worthy. Just make me a hired servant. No, no, no. no. I don't want you to be a hired servant. You're a son. Come in here. Get Get a robe on this guy. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate because this son has humbled himself. He's come home. He's mine. Where are you at today? Let's pray. Father, we love you. But the only reason we can say we love you is because you love us. You first loved us. You've demonstrated your love there on the cross. This morning, God, I thank you for this wonderful picture in this story of the prodigal son. The reality is we are all prodigals. We're all walking into guilty distance. We're all doing our own thing. We all think that that what we're pursuing or what we want to pursue is bigger and better and it's going to give us more pleasure and it's going to do more for us into the future. And yet, so many times, the direction we're walking is exactly opposite of where you would have us to go. We're believing the lies that are being whispered into our ears. And into our hearts, God. This morning, there be there may be marriages on the rock today. When the husband is listening. He's saying, "That's that's exactly where we're at. It's my fault." Today, that husband, that wife, is beginning to understand that it's not too late. That grace is available. Lord, I pray that you would help them to come home. Come home to the Lord in repentance and faith. Come home to one another in repentance and love. Lord, I pray that you would write a story there that is miraculous and redemptive. some men in this room some women in this room that need a relationship with Jesus today they're where they are because of sin they need a relationship with Him they need forgiveness for that sin I pray the moment of response that He would just lead them to that place a place of brokenness a place of faith a place of repentance turning from that sin I pray for marriages in this room that are strong today that are healthy that are living in some really really good days God we don't want to be pessimistic and say well the the storm's coming but in reality the storm is coming so God I pray that you would strengthen them I pray that you would help them to see that what they're doing is the right thing to do and continue to lean into one another continue to lean into you God I pray that you would also help them to, to see that they can be an encouragement and blessing to others to allow what God has gifted them with and blessed them with to help others to come along. God, maybe you are giving some, just a vision of how you would use them in the future to reach back and take the hand of a younger couple and say, we'd like to come alongside.